The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Tonight I'd like to go a little bit more in depth as we understand this. It's really a kind of linchpin uh, feeling tone is in terms of how it how it's the catalyst for so much of our mental formations, you know, all the baggage, all the tendencies that have been conditioned into our minds. So how does certain of those tendencies, those formations come up? Well, it's really feeling tone that draws things to the surface the different responses, the different reactions. In a way, it's what the mind cues on earth. Sets things in motion. But before I kind of dig in a little bit more, I thought it'd be nice to take some time at least. We'll see how much people have to say. But it was our sworn duty to study pleasantness this last week and again this next week. So seems like it would be worthwhile to spend two weeks in our life to actually, you know, train in being interested in ordinary pleasantness that arises in our experience and to train, to practice showing up for the pleasantness of experience, pleasant touches, pleasant sights, Pleasant sounds, pleasant smells and tastes, and pleasant thoughts. So, what, I mean, even if all you're going to share is your direct, immediate experience of pleasantness, that's good. And then any sense, any discernment of when, with the arising of that pleasantness came these other mental formations, these other arisings like wanting to hold on to it, or whatever it was. So just to share a little bit of what the feeling set in motion, and whether the feeling seemed permanent or constant, or whether it faded or disappeared. So we'll take a, at least a couple sharings. It'd be nice to hear from people. What have you been learning? And we have the mic, of course, so just raise your hand, and I'll pass it over. Pleasantness. Yes, Mary. Well, I had kind of a strange reaction to pleasantness. Well, it felt strange to me. Um, I thought for sure I would crave more. <laughs> um, I lean more aversive <laughs> toward the aversive type. But instead, I um, noted guilt. Um, and that surprised me. I mean, it did, but it didn't surprise me. Um so when I felt the guilt, then it was, well, is it skillful to feel guilty about something that's pleasant? So that was a real eye-opener for me, you know. Or would it be better to, you know, embrace the pleasantness? So I actually had a really interesting week kind of experiencing that um, uh, several times. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Why don't you just hold on to it till we see who's back and the interesting thing about what Mary said, it's an example of how our whole personality gets built 
out of our relationship to feeling. You know, like that pattern that we often almost always never see unless we investigate a little. Yeah, back in the Ellis. Well, I um, was reading Joseph Goldstein's book, the, um, the, I'm, the mindfulness one? Thank you, yeah. yes. The chapter on feeling? <laughs> yes, so I read that chapter. And he was um, saying he was on a walk, doing his walking meditation. And then he would think about going to get tea and that that was a pleasant feeling tone. And I'm like, oh, so he has pleasant feeling tones. And that's okay to like want to go get tea, that you can call that a pleasant feeling tone. Kind of like what Mary was talking about. Like, it's okay to call these things that give us pleasure pleasant without feeling guilty about it so that was really eye-opening for me because it's almost like I was kept more in the trance state in um and I can give an example like planning for my daughter something you know like make sure she gets her multivitamins in the morning and then I could really be taken away with this planning but then I'm like it's a pleasant feeling tone, noticing that I'm um, planning. Planning is so pleasant. It really is addictive to me. And I guess it was a real eye-opening, it was eye-opener to notice the difference between worldly pleasures and unworldly pleasures. And noticing that sometimes, like, the development of focusing on neutral and um, kind of developed more into... Um, unworld is it unworldly pleasure? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Unworldly pleasure. Um, so, just a real a lot of awareness to what pleasure and neutral is for me, yeah. and like being okay with feeling pleasure, even when it seems like it should be. It's not like like planning is really pleasurable to me. So. Um, it's okay to call it a pleasant feeling tone, and it really made me aware of it more in my practice. So thank you. Yeah, no, don't thank me, but these teachings are, I mean, it's amazing. When we really authentically take up the study of feeling tone, we can't help but learn about how things work. Yeah, thanks. Who's next? Gail next, and then somebody else? We want to just hand it to somebody, and then they'll pass it forward. I think um, kind of along the same lines as the other. Along the same lines is um, when I would see the neutral tone, feel the neutral tone, it would be like, oh, this is so nice. And And neutral became very sweet, but it was so much calmer than a pleasant tone. But it was still quite pleasant. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk more in the weeks ahead about these unworldly feelings because remember, unworldly the the sort of operative definition of an unworldly feeling is a feeling that uh, it's the feeling of feeling when there's not grasping it, like with aversion you're pushing away. But what's the feeling of aversion? with non-grasping? Or what's the feeling of pleasantness with non-grasping? Or what's the feeling of neutrality without ignoring it, without grasping? The way we grasp neutrality is we ignore it, like because it's neutral. But without that, what is the experience of neutrality? 
And so this is, we say, well, it's an unworldly neutral feeling or an unworldly pleasant feeling or an unworldly unpleasant feeling because the mind, the normal conditioned reaction isn't operating. And you're going to start noticing these unworldly feelings because a lot of us, we've all been training in relating to experience without attachment. That's basically the definition of mindfulness, right? To be aware, awake, but not having an agenda with whatever's being known. So then that means you're, whatever that feels like, that what you're knowing feels like, that would be an unknown, unworldly feeling because if your mindfulness is strong or well-established, then you don't have an agenda except to connect. But we'll talk more about it. Initially, just like an ordinary, you know, just notice pleasantness for the rest of this week. I mean, really resolve, just because it's not our habit to make a study of pleasantness. It's, and a lot of us have already made a study of unpleasantness because it becomes really obvious when we start practicing. And we'll do that, you know, after next week. We'll kind of dig in more with unpleasantness. But just let's continue. And we have time for maybe one or two more comments about pleasantness. Megan? Um, I think I was just reflecting, and I actually did remember to reflect on pleasantness this week. Um, And I remember thinking how pleasant it was to do so, and that it was actually just, like... I don't know. I think I would like have this kind of upwelling of gratitude when I notice the pleasantness and it maybe because there wasn't a whole lot of attachment, but things like the weather or like seeing people or, um, I don't know. I felt like the, the tone of that reflection was gratitude. Um, so it's nice to know that you can appreciate things and like not be afraid of being attached to them. I think that's all I have. Yeah. Thanks, Megan. Um, I guess mine was an unworldly, although it was pretty much in the world. But um, I was driving along. I don't notice pleasant very often. But when I do, I really notice it. Um, I was driving along, and a couple of squirrels, you know, come out into the street, kind of playing around. And so I, uh, I don't know, I kind of like squirrels. I didn't want to kill them, that was for sure. So um, I just said, okay, you guys, get out of the way. And, you know, they got out of the way. Of course, it wasn't because of me. They got out of the way. They probably heard the car. But I got this just really wonderful feeling um, in my chest. It's kind of like a little mini orgasm in the chest or something. Um <laughs> Do other people Maybe feel that love. too? <laughs> yeah. Is that what love is? Is that what it is? Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> Squirrel love. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, it's just extremely pleasant and not at all clinging. I mean, it was gone. They were gone. I was driving on, and it just dissipated quite quickly. But so I didn't really hang on to it. But I really noticed it because that's when I notice it is when I get that feeling. It, maybe it is love. I don't know. Well, we have to be careful with titles because then it's easier to grasp, you know, yeah. when we think Yeah, it. it didn't feel like I needed to grasp it at all. It was just a moment yeah. of, you know, I really appreciated. I appreciated my own, I think I appreciated my own caring about the squirrels. I appreciated the fun of watching them. I appreciated the fact I didn't kill them. You know, just, it was just a nice experience. 
And one of the great uh, results or wonderful results of just doing the study on pleasantness, for some of us who tend to be more critical and negative, the evidence of noticing actual pleasant moments that are pleasant, it challenges the sort of fixed idea that life is miserable. I mean, not that we would say it in that way, you know, life is miserable. I mean, some of us would. <laughs> but but then it, we can't hold up that idea because when we look, actually, no, it was... Not, I mean, we were doing uh, Denny's memorial service, uh, putting the ashes in the ground yesterday, and Corey had brought out some sage and sweetgrass in it. And uh, I just noticed as we were standing, I mean, there were a lot of really pleasant things there at the time. Also, it was sad. Um, but every time the wind would blow in that and the smell of the sage and sweetgrass would come, it was so pleasant. It was just a really... And then, and then, you know, once the mind is attuned to pleasant, it gets interested in pleasant. So then even the, the way the smoke moved was pleasant. And, uh, and then so many other things became pleasant, too. So it's like a whole half of the universe comes online that we were unaware of because it didn't fit our operating idea that life is hard or life is miserable. So once we start to notice, then the mind is naturally curious about everything else that might be pleasant. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, Nancy. Um, so something she said triggered this and that we, so I hope I can formulate my thoughts, but, um, when you said, I don't notice pleasantness very much, that was my main, that was my first realization was that I was like, what is that? It was such a foreign concept to notice pleasantness. And clearly I'm a really negative thinker (laughs) more than I even realized. I had no idea. Um, and then it was overwhelming. I mean, it was very pleasant at first. It was like, oh, this is pleasant to notice pleasantness, like you said, but then I felt overwhelmed by it almost like it was like there was this um thick roof over my mind and I had like cracked a little hole in it and not realized that there was this universe above it that I didn't even know existed almost it was almost that intense and then it almost felt like too much work so I I think at some point I gave up I was like (laughs) like the first half of the week I was like working really hard at it and then I just kind of was like oh forget it it's just like there's too much work to like get rid of that roof or something. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, I'm glad I'm here tonight to remember because <laughs> I had forgotten, yeah. but it was, it was a great exercise. I'm really scared to, to notice unpleasantness. I don't know what's going to happen with that, but. Well, the thing is both with the pleasant, and this goes back to your previous comment, Nancy, both the pleasantness and unpleasantness and of course, neutrality, they're already being known and the mind is already reacting what's being known. So by being aware that feeling tone is being known, then all of a sudden there's a choice of like whether the reactive pattern is going to be acted out or not, or whether there's just going to be intimacy. And it does, it's the point you made, you know, the way you described it was real visceral about how the Wherever, it's not just in this particular aspect of the practice, but wherever we dig into the practice, initially the mind is always going to interpret the practice as a self-project. So like 
we start talking about, let's notice pleasantness. And then you started to notice, yeah, I mean, basically anything can be, like, if you just, it's just a question of the facet or the how you experience, like even just the visceral experience of having a body can be seen as pleasant or it could be seen as unpleasant because it's a relative thing. Remember, pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality isn't a fixed reality. It's a construction of the mind. And of course, it's partly or maybe a lot dependent on past conditioning, but how we look, how we know the experience also can affect whether something is understood or experienced as pleasant or unpleasant. And so, like you, we've been talking about the whole world or the whole this whole other universe opens up, and then, of course, the habit of the mind will be to, to think, I've got to, no, I've got one more thing I've got to do. You know, it's hard enough being a human being, and now I've got to notice. But the, the thing is, there's, that the system is already sensitive, and it's already that sensitivity of the mind, heart, it's already interpreting experience in terms of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality. And so, how much effort is it to notice that, 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 that that's happening? What's already happening is happening. So it's not so much a, a doing, like the discerning, should this be pleasant or unpleasant? That we don't have to do. That's why, I don't know if it was last week or the first week, I mentioned be on the lookout for demanding that your mind actually say this is pleasant or this is unpleasant. So it's not the concept, this is pleasant or unpleasant, but the actual feeling of it. It feels like this, like Robin was talking about this little mini orgasm in her heart area, so we wanted to write about that. <laughs> but, but, the, but it's a feeling, it was a feeling, right? And if she was forced, she'd say, well, it was pleasant. But it's not the word that she tells herself that it's pleasant, it's the feeling that comes first. Right? Or the and it's not even the visceral feeling, it's that the mind likes it, or the mind doesn't like it, or the mind doesn't care about it because it's neutral. So partly we know too by what gets set in motion, like on a you know, in terms of the conventional condition of the mind, does it like enliven the mind, and the mind sort of wants more of it or wants to move away from it or doesn't care about it. Yeah, Nick, wait for the mic, though. Uh, What's the proper way to feel about a feeling? I'm serious. Yeah, 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 interested. Like I've heard about feeling guilty about having a pleasant feeling. What are we supposed to do with them? Well, the... You know, from a, a wisdom, an inside point of view, we're interested, like I said earlier, as a linchpin or a catalyst. Like it, it sets in motion a lot of mental conditioning, a lot of habit energy. If we're unaware, then that habit energy gets set in motion, but there's no awareness that it's getting set in motion. So it, it basically, the mind acts out that habit energy, and there's no way for that not to happen because there's no reflective awareness knowing that this stuff has gotten triggered. But when there's mindful awareness, the feeling will still trigger the past conditioning, the habit energy, 
But now there's awareness and some wisdom that understands, oh, that's a feeling, and that's getting triggered because of that feeling, and it's just this experience being known. And there's, there's some capacity at just letting it be without having to go further to act it out, like to think more about it. Like when we have a pleasant feeling, like even the example I gave yesterday, you know, it's sort of like, you know, finding that sweet spot where you're getting enough of the smoke, but not too much of the smoke. You, but you don't want to miss it altogether. So it's like campfires too, you know, it's like, it's nice to smell the wood, but too much smoke, it's hard to bear. So you start getting a little greedy around it, right? So what we want to do with feeling is we want to discern how it sets in motion a person who's suffering, a person who has got work to do, who has an agenda, right? Whether it's true with unpleasant feeling, like if I'm noticing the unpleasantness of my knee pain, then I've got an agenda, like do I move it here, do I move it there, do I just stay still and hope it goes away, do I think about starting a yoga program again, you know, so it's like all of that is stressful, that reaction to the feeling tone. And so what we want to do is discern how the unpleasantness triggers activity that then is experienced as stressful, more unpleasantness which triggers more of that same conditioning to struggle, which is unpleasant, which triggers more of that same habit to struggle, so that we get caught in that feedback mechanism. And so the purpose is to see how feeling the unpleasantness, uh, feeling unpleasantness can, without wisdom, lead to hell, basically, to cycles of suffering over and over again. We get caught. And same with pleasant sensations, pleasant feeling rather, can trigger also hell. As we want more, we start to strategize. We're not really in the conversation because we're already thinking about this pleasant thing I'm going to get when this I can finally get done with this conversation and I can, you know, get home or do whatever I'm going to do. So when the mind is not wise and it's experiencing neutrality, pleasantness or unpleasantness, some habit is going to get triggered and being imprisoned, you know, just to be provocative or exaggerate a little, to be imprisoned by that pattern that's gotten triggered is suffering. So we want to see that over and over again, that feeling tone triggers fixed states of mind, fixed reactions in the mind, and that's experience of suffering. And when the mind is able to be intimate with feeling then it doesn't get swept away. You know, these are called the four floods. I wrote them down, actually. I was going to mention them later. Right? The flood of sense desire, the, the flood of becoming, the flood of wrong view, self-view, and the flood of ignorance. So these are the taints, or the asawas, the Pali word. And these floods sweep us away endlessly, one flood being the cause for the next flood, the next flood. And the mind is always tumbling forward. And the floods themselves are pleasant and unpleasant. Like with sense desire, if I imagine a nice pleasant, uh, a pleasant sense desire, there's some pleasantness there. But the fact that I don't have it yet, like imagining it is pleasant, but the 
experience of not having it is unpleasant. So that dynamic drives the mind on and on. It's restless. It's like the human realm is a restless realm because of wanting to become somebody, thinking about it as pleasant, becoming the person like a, a famous Dharma teacher who writes books and you know people think he's really wonderful. And then but having to become that person and not yet being that person, that's really unpleasant. So we get, you can see how the pleasantness and unpleasantness are constantly generating restlessness, activity of doing, becoming, getting rid of, getting, endlessly. Yeah, hiya. Want to pass it back, Nick? Yeah, I'm not sure if I can put this in words, but I'm going to try. Uh, my experience today, I was aware that, you know, this morning, just all of a sudden tears just started coming. I was feeling really sad, feeling really lonely in the morning. And it's like I had to be at work, though. So, and I, you know, it was like, how, you know, I was like, then I started grasping, you know, trying to grasp at pleasantness, you know, try to find something pleasant, try to find something pleasant. And only the tears were greater. It was difficult to to find my space right at work. I actually left work. And then when I got home, I found that the tears were like, oh, this is okay now. This is okay that these tears are falling. It's okay to feel what I'm feeling. But there's sometimes that I find when I'm in the world, per se, and having to act out a certain way, it's like, how do I find my wisdom? Where do I find the the skill? What do I use when the feelings are so strong and I know that that's not appropriate for the, the place that I am. Yeah. Well, it's like that, you know, even on retreat or in a meditation, it's like when we can be aware of the pain in the body or the pain in the heart, it can actually not be a problem at all. But if we get a little distraction, uh, distracted, it can be overwhelming very quickly, like the pain in the body. We were there with it. We were intimate with it. The body was very still. The mind was really quiet. But there was a lot of pain that the mind was aware of. And then if we get a little distracted, it's very hard to be with pain when we're not there with wisdom. right? And so it's not easy to have that stability of mind when you're at work that you could. right? And then you gave such a good example because it's so classic that when we're feeling overrun by pleasant, unpleasant experience, we desperately want pleasant experience, right? I just If I could only have some chocolate, or if I could only, you know, turn the radio on, or whatever it is, you know, even, you know, go get a beverage or something like that, some pleasantness to sort of, like, support ourselves against the experience of unpleasantness. But the great need for pleasantness is stressful. The pleasant experience of chocolate may not be stressful, but being the one who needs it is stressful, right? And Or being the one who has to get away from this is stressful. But when we're not the one who has to be away from the painful experience, but we're the one who can open to it, well, that's not so stressful. In fact, 
it's kind of liberating, isn't it, to be the one who can be right in the middle of experience. And that's where unpleasantness goes from mundane unpleasantness, worldly unpleasantness, to unworldly unpleasantness, right? Because it's liberating to be with pleasantness without aversion. So what is the experience of pain without aversion? What is the experience of unpleasantness without aversion? And we can realize this right now because probably somewhere in our body and maybe emotionally, there's something that's unpleasant. So what is the experience when we're not afraid of it, when we're really letting it, we're not manipulating it or tensing up around it or even have any story whatsoever. Just intimate. It's funny how the mind still, in a way, gets that it's unpleasant, but it's not a problem that it's unpleasant. And you might even notice how liberating that is. Because the mind, on some, even it may be weak now, but the mind intuits something. It's like a a flavor of liberation. Something like, you mean I don't have to run from unpleasantness? You mean I don't have to get tight? I don't have to be afraid of all the things that are unpleasant? You see, that's pretty amazing. Like, I don't have to be afraid of death. I don't have to be afraid of uncertainty. I don't have to be afraid of humiliation, the pain of humiliation. I don't have to be afraid of, you know, whatever the cold of winter or the stubbing of toe or all of that stuff. That means we can move through life uh, like a free person, wholehearted, not afraid of mistakes. Not that we're looking to make mistakes, but we're we're not afraid of the bumps and bruises that come along the way. And so the pattern is, maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit and save some time at the end. So the basic process that I introduced the first night, and it's coming right out of the Buddha's teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta, that passage that's repeated 13 times. So the Buddha teaches four areas, four establishments of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, Mindfulness of feeling, that's what this course is on. Mindfulness of the mind. And then mindfulness of some of the maps that the Buddha taught. So looking at the mind and body through the lens of these maps. That's the fourth foundation. And then in some of these different areas, there's more than one meditation. Like in feeling, there's really just one meditation. Being aware of feeling, right? Then in body, there's mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of daily activities, you know, and then some reflections on like the dissolution of the body, decomposition of the body, or the body parts. Some of you were in the summer course. We did these different meditations. So there are 13 meditations altogether. And for each meditation, then the Buddha gives this little, like then with this particular aspect of our moment-to-moment experience, in this case feeling, you want to be able to notice it in and of itself. So the mind that knows, connecting with the feeling tone of this moment in and of itself, not in terms of the world, 
not in terms of any thought, which is why it's not important that you know it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. What's important is that you know that the mind likes it or doesn't like it or doesn't care about it because it's neutral. So that's what you want to know. What's the mind? Does the mind like it or not like it? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? So that's the first thing. Can we know feeling in and of itself, not in terms of anything else? So like if you use the RAIN acronym, it means just recognizing feeling tone or connecting with feeling tone. And the thing is, with that connection, that means we're not just, even if it just lasts a moment, in that moment, the mind isn't being swept away by some reactive pattern, right? And so, this is why I I mentioned that uh, when we're working with our samadhi object, like being aware of the breath coming in, you know, just that simple experience of feeling the touching at the nostrils or feeling the belly rise or expand with the in-breath or contract with the out-breath. So whatever you use for your basic samadhi training, breath, body sensations, hearing, or some loving-kindness phrase, or the feeling, the actual state of loving-kindness, whatever you use, notice how just the act of one moment of connecting literally means that the mind has put down the world of this and that and good and bad to some degree at least, right? Because to know feeling tone in and of itself or the breath in and of itself means that the mind can't be thinking, I'm doing a good job or I'm doing a bad job or anything. Because in that moment of connecting, that's all the mind is doing. The mind does one thing. It connects. It knows. Oh, it's like this now. Now, of course, that moment will only be a moment, which is not very long at all. But we can notice that a moment of connecting has a feeling, and it's pleasant. And then if that connection, that knowing, the not forgetting the present moment, if that can be sustained, then that has an even more refined feeling of pleasantness. Right? Because... It's the pleasantness of the mind not being neurotic, basically, because the mind isn't feeling obliged to construct a story about what's happening or judge it or try to make it last or go away. It's just that activity of mind, which is stressful, that selfing activity, self-centered activity, has ceased because there's a moment and a moment and a moment of mindful awareness, seeing, knowing things in and of themselves. And that then leads to an experience of calm. So there's, and then ease, and then stillness. So there's just a natural, lawful development of settledness, of stability of mind, of peace. Just from connecting and sustaining. These relate to the five jhanic factors for those who have studied these, or we learn these in our, Samadhi class that we do for Buddhist studies every couple times in the six-year cycle. And uh, so we have connecting and sustaining and rapture, that sort of lightness. And after rapture, we have ekagata, so 
Oh, sukha, I'm sorry. So we have connecting, sustaining, rapture, joy, sukha, ease, and then ekagata, one-pointedness, that stillness, quality of stillness. So in a state of concentration, initial state, you have all of them to some degree, but the early states emphasize the connecting and sustaining, and the more refined states of absorption or concentration emphasize the last, the stillness or the peace, the peace of equanimity. So we can just notice that pleasantness. This is such a simple, like in terms of studying feeling tone, and then of course the mind will get distracted, and then just notice the feeling tone of being distracted. Whatever the mind's doing, it feels like something. What does it feel like? It feels like this. It feels like this. And then as you tune into the feeling tone, what gets set in motion. So this takes us to the second stage, right? The first stage of mindfulness that the Buddha repeats is to know things in and of themselves. The second state is to start when there's enough continuity, then to start noticing how I get into states of suffering, cycles of suffering, how I can sustain states of peace, of non-suffering, of happiness, a mind free of greed, anger, and delusion. How does that come to be? So we're studying what comes and goes. Because of the continuity we, and because of the attention to feeling, we're seeing the lawfulness of suffering and the end of suffering, or suffering and not suffering, happiness and not happiness. Uh, with the lawfulness and how feeling enters into that. And it has to do, you know, the nice thing is we have the, the teaching, so it has to do with what is the mind making feeling, we're turning feeling into. This is from Doug Miguel. Some of you know he's the teacher down in Rochester, comes up and teaches here every once in a while. He sent a email out a while ago, this is many years ago, I think, yeah, 2006. And he was just sort of writing a little uh, essay on feeling tone for his community. He ends with this paragraph. <clears throat> What's the ultimate goal here? The ultimate goal is that as a result of knowing from experience that feelings simply arise and fall just like every anything else, henceforth we will let them do just that, arise and fall. And when we won't, do, and what we won't do is let a positive feeling blossom into want, then into greed, and then into need, and then into something we simply must have in order to feel secure, to be fulfilled, and to be ourselves. And we won't let uh, a negative feeling, and we won't let a negative feeling blossom into aversion, then into hatred. And then into something we must destroy in order to feel secure, to be fulfilled, and to be ourselves. Rather, we'll just let feelings be feelings, enjoying them, not for enjoying them or not for as long as they last, and then pay attention to what comes next. So feelings can just be feelings, but in order for feelings to be feelings, we have to be aware of all that they trigger, because that's the only way not to be confused by all the mental formations, all the conditioning that gets triggered 
triggered when we have a pleasant experience. It's so interesting to see how a whole universe comes online when we have unpleasant feelings. Like, oh, life is, you know, it's just like that whole depressive, when we wake up and we feel some unpleasantness in our body, or it's cold, or, you know, whatever it is. Or when somebody says something and we, and we feel good, you know, and then all of a sudden a whole universe arises like, now I'm the person who has to do all these things because I have energy. I feel good. It's its own hell when things feel good. It's really interesting to see that, uh, the birth of hell when the mind takes feeling tone personally. And when we learn to see feeling tone, feeling as just feeling, like those worlds pass away. At first, it might even seem a little disconcerting. Like we don't know how to orient ourselves in the world if we're not orienting around the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling. Who are we when we're not reacting to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral? Because that's really the animal realm. Like uh, I think, I don't know if all of you were there, but I've talked recently about this little use of the six realms of existence as a you know metaphor a way to help us understand our own experience as a human being and then so the animal realm the mind is obsessed with survival and the whole you know cueing or the whole orientation of survival is cueing in tuning in to pleasant unpleasant and neutral we're just sort of following those cues to maximize pleasant, you know, and we look at all the nuts in the in the little hutch or wherever we're storing them, and you know, we it's a pleasant feeling. And the thought that there are more nuts out there to collect is a pleasant feeling. And then finding a nut is a pleasant feeling. And then not finding the nut is an unpleasant feeling. And noticing all the space still yet to be filled with nuts is an. Un- so it's like that's the animal realm because it never ends, right? Like things that could be seen as pleasant and trigger greed or things that could be seen as unpleasant and trigger aversion. And the human realm is more of an orientation around pleasantness and maximizing pleasantness. So um, we can transcend all of these realms, which all all the six realms, you know, the angelic realms and the hell realms, they're just obsessing about feeling tones in different ways. In hell, what are we obsessing around? How painful it is, right? But it, if in a moment when you're in hell, right, because we get in hell sometimes, the moment the mind takes its attention away from the unpleasantness and notices something else, it's not in hell anymore. Hell is when the mind is fixated on the unpleasantness. Oh, why does this hurt so much? Right? It's the seeing that sort of narrowness on the unpleasantness. And even when it like goes away, we immediately we have a thought, it's just going to come back, which is an unpleasant thought. Right? We call, if you notice like when you're in a real hellish state and it, the painful feeling go, goes away, it's like, you're looking. It's almost like you're pinching yourself. Wait, I know it hurts. <laughs> I know I'm miserable. Like, I'm sure I'm miserable. I, and I'll find it. 
it's here somewhere in my experience. What was I miserable about? You know, <laughs> and eventually we'll turn the news on and we'll find something to get miserable about. Or we'll bring up some memory. This is more likely what we'll do is we'll bring up some memory. Or like if you've been dreaming a really terrible dream and you wake up and you can't quite remember. But it's like you'll notice if you've been practicing mindfulness, you'll notice your mind looking for that content that was so terrible. Because you know it's, you've got the scent of unpleasantness and you, you need the content to play with it, right? Because the content triggers the unpleasant feeling and then the unpleasant feeling brings the mind back to the content. And that's that dance of hell, right? Where you're in hell, fixated on that. And then in the animal realm, you know, it's just like uh, playing with both, pleasant and unpleasant. And on and on from there. And then, of course, in the more refined realms, like, you know, they say, if you get really good at your loving-kindness practice and you can go into deep absorption with the experience of loving-kindness, then you'll be reborn. If you don't become fully awake, you'll be reborn and it will last a long time, an inconceivable amount of time, where you'll not even have a body, not even an energy body. You'll just be in formless, in a formless realm of of uh, loving kindness, forever, like uh, almost forever, until that doesn't last anymore. So these, uh, but that's uh, the mind is absorbed; it's fixed on pleasantness. And it doesn't go away. And you, you see some people like that, that they have the good fortune, uh, both internally, like in terms of how their, their mechanism of their personality, and then externally in terms of their situation in the world, where they, they're just in a bliss realm, a deva realm. They just have one nice thing to pay attention to and another. And they just like nice, pleasant things. And they're like, my sweater is so nice. And this meal, don't you like this meal? And hey, let's go take a walk in this park. And, you know, I love all beings. And <clears throat> until it doesn't last, right? I mean, it can last. For some people, they, they can be on a real roll. And their mind is one on attending to one pleasant thing after another. But wherever we are, like in more hellish states or more beautiful, pleasant states, wherever we are, we can train that the pleasantness or the unpleasantness or the neutrality, it's just a feeling. It's just that feeling. And notice what happens. Like, it's a a more refined, like that feeling of freedom is a refined experience. We have to cultivate a taste for the mind not being pushed around by feeling. The happiness, you could say, I think it's okay to call it happiness, the happiness of a mind not being driven based on its conditioning of feeling. So this is why the Buddha talks about happiness or freedom being unconditioned. This is from the beginning of uh, Venerable Analeo's book, which is a great reference. So there's two wonderful references now on the Satipatthana Sutta. Venerable Analeo, this German monk um, who got his PhD, writing his dissertation on the Satipatthana Sutta in Sri Lanka. And the book is Satipatthana, I'm forgetting the subtitle. Um, and then Joseph Gold, do you remember? 
Yeah, that's it. The path to liberation. And then Joseph Goldstein wrote a book called Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, which is his sort of more uh, available <clears throat> writing of the same book that Venerable Analeo. He, was, he even says in the beginning how he was inspired by Venerable Analeo's book. So you can get either one. And maybe somebody is willing to scan the chapter on feeling tone that Ellis mentioned from um, Joseph Goldstein's book on mindfulness. So if anybody can do that, just see me and I'll get, a, get you a copy. Do you have a copy of it? Oh, great. That would be great. And then just send it to me and I'll send it to the group. So this is... Yeah, all, yeah, all his talks in the Satipatthana. Yeah, I think they're talks 11 and 12 are on feeling tone. And you can just look under uh, Dharma Seed, Joseph Goldstein, Satipatthana, and then look for, I think it's 11 and 12, or his two talks that he used to write his chapter. So here's uh, what Venerable Analeo says. The first part of the above instruction, so he just, this is right after the, the discourse, which I read the first week. The first part of the above instruction distinguishes between the three basic kinds of feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. According to the discourses, developing understanding and detachment or non-attachment in regard to these three feelings has the potential to lead to freedom from dukkha. So it's liberating, in other words. Since such understanding can be gained through the practice of satipatthana, mindfulness, Contemplation of feeling is a meditation practice of considerable potential. This potential is based on the simple but ingenious, ingenious, ingenious method of directing awareness to the very first state, to the very first stages of the arising of likes and dislikes, by clearly noting whether the present moment's experience is felt as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So the key here is it's not so easy if there's something pleasant and the mind's been in a reactive mode to it for a while. It's not so easy at that point to see through the seductiveness of the reactive pattern to the feeling tone of pleasantness or unpleasantness. So the key is to have a lot of samadhi, the mind's really stable and calm, not being pushed around by feeling tone. And then when something arises, like there's a memory and that memory has a feeling tone, then the mind sees the feeling tone arise right in those first moments of its arising. And then the mind is able to see, oh, it's just a feeling. But if the memory's there and the painful or pleasant feeling associated with that memory comes and you think about it, and that has more of that feeling tone, and you think about it, it has more of that feeling tone, and it's been five minutes that you've been thinking about that memory, And then some wisdom mindfulness arises and knows, wait a minute, I feel my mind, this mind feels entangled, feels tight. What's the feeling tone? You can do it, but there's so many seductive, so much seductive thought, content reverberating in the mind. Remember that dance, feeling tone, content, the content, triggers feeling tone, right? Because with content, with the memory, the images and thoughts of the memory is the feeling tone, and then the feeling tone triggers more of the content, the images and thoughts. 
So when that dance has gotten some momentum, it's very confusing because the habit, the big habit of the mind is to, to orient around the content, the images, much more than its pleasantness or unpleasantness. So partly we're training the mind to be able to recognize this satipatthana, a feeling, right? So that it doesn't just see the content. Because in any moment, there's feeling tone, but we tend to notice the mind's interpretation of what's happening, the, co- the content, the concept, the idea, right? The thought. We tend to notice that, the cognition, but we don't notice it feels like this. It feels like this. But we can learn how to do that when we develop some samadhi. This is why, because this is a more subtle satipatthana, foundation of mindfulness, it takes more samadhi to do it. So we're going to kind of get some momentum in our sitting practice, and then we can take it on the road a little bit more, where we really see, oh yeah, this is just pleasant. This is, we learn so much from physical pain in sitting and so much from the development of samadhi, the pleasantness of samadhi itself, the pleasantness of calm, the pleasantness of joy, the lightness of the mind when it's not afflicted by what's agitating, like worrying or planning or wondering if I'm doing a good job. When that activity, that relatively agitated, stressful activity isn't happening, The mind is light. And that lightness, the joy itself, makes the mind become content. I don't have to do anything because it feels good already. And then that contentness matures into an even more refined happiness of stillness. So we learn a lot about pleasant and unpleasant when things are more settled. To really emphasize that basic samadhi practice in your sitting time. I mean, orient around feeling tone all day long. But in your sitting time, really notice the pleasantness of just sudden. Like even the first few moments of sitting and you've just like, already we've put down so much just to, just to follow that intention to sit down for some amount of time. It's already a relief. Okay, I'm not part of the world for this period of time. I'm dropping it. I'm not a human being with duties and responsibilities except to be with my meditation object and with distraction. And already that simplification feels good to some degree. I mean, it's not going to be like winning the lottery or whatever. But if you, if you attune, you'll notice, oh, it feels good to sit down. It feels good to put down the world. And then when you turn your attention and you connect with the next in-breath, you actually come back to your samadhi, your training ground, your samadhi object. Then especially if you've been doing it for a while, it's a little bit of a homecoming. Oh yeah, my mind likes to connect. It likes to sustain. It's pleasant. It feels safe here. right? So there's a basic happiness of connecting and sustaining. When you know that kind of happiness and the happiness of joy, the happiness of ease, sukha, the happiness of stillness, then you'll recognize it so much more out in the world, like moments of intimacy, intimacy with the squirrels or whatever it is, because that's not that different than intimacy with the breath. 
It's just happening in a moment out in the world. You see the sky. It's a moment of intimacy, of samadhi. It's just a, you know, samadhi can come through the formal training we do when we sit. But there's also moment-to-moment samadhi. So you can have a moment of real samadhi. It just won't be sustained because the mind isn't stable. But just connecting with objects. And they don't have to be pleasant. You can do it with the taste of toothpaste, you know, or the feeling of the water touching the skin when you're washing your hands, little things. Any uh, closing thought? Just time for one comment or question. Yeah, Sharon. me to settle down and um, this last week I was at my little spot and this red squirrel was running around and I just watched the squirrel and um, at some point he got up to a, a really kind of a weak tree and of course he's very little and was looking staring down at me and I was staring up at him and neither, I, you know he knew there was a presence there I didn't move um, but we just stared at each other for a really long time and then he turned around and ran further up the tree, and I could just, he was making noise, and I could just see his chest. I mean, he was obviously very frightened. And it was such a message to me, prone to anxiety, to see how unnecessary his anxiety was, because there was no way that I was going to do him any harm. And yet, um, it was that, that focus and that sort of lesson of, um, how often I do the same thing. Yeah. Yep, a little frightened beast. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Noticing the feeling tone, if you can. Being intimate, knowing it feels like this now. Thanks everyone for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.